Hello, friends. Let me take a moment to thank BetterHelp for sponsoring our podcast. Let me talk to you a little bit about searching for happiness or trying to achieve goals. And oftentimes, life and circumstances and other reasons get in the way. So BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating with your therapist within 48 hours. And it's not a crisis hotline, okay? And it's not self-help. It's actual professional counseling, but it's done securely online. You have access to BetterHelp's network of over 20,000 counselors with a wide variety of expertise and training. And this is also about accessibility, If you don't have a counselor in your area to see in person, then this could be a great solution for you. So this service is available for clients worldwide, and you can log into your account at any time and send a message to your counselor. So again, accessibility. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as in traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, and they make it easy and free if you want to change counselors if necessary. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. So visit BetterHelp.com. That's Better. H-E-L-P dot com slash psych explained and join the over 1 million people who are taking charge of their mental health with the help of experienced mental health professionals. And there's a special offer for my Psychology Concepts Explained listeners. You can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash psych explained. You can see the link in the show notes. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Psychology Concepts Explained. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Jack Chuang, and welcome back to another Psychology Long Form Lecture. In today's chapter, I will be covering the chapter on social psychology from an introductory to psychology course level. And I have to tell you that my first um, graduate school major, that sounded kind of confusing, was in the field of social psychology, and I absolutely loved it. So I went from the field of social psychology to counseling psychology later on, and I'll talk about my experiences working with patients when we cover that chapter. But social psychology I'm, I'm very fond of. And it's sad that we're only going to, again, scratch the surface of many of these concepts. And I will try to focus on the classic studies and major themes in social psychology in this uh, particular lecture podcast because there's just way too much to cover. And again, my outline is based on the Psychology 2nd Edition textbook. It's free online from openstacks.org that's o-p-e-n-s-t-a-x dot org so feel free even if you're not 
in this psychology course. Just go to the website, you get a free psychology textbook. All right. So the field of social psychology is really focused on how an individual is affected by their social situations, okay? So this is different from sociology where the level of focus is on group behavior. Here, social psychologists are focused on individual behavior. So think of it this way. It's not so much whether social psychologists are looking at you in particular with your set of history and culture and personality set will behave in a certain situation. That's really not the focus of social psychology. Think of social psychology as looking at how would, on average, a person, an average person, whatever that might mean, okay? So it just means an individual, on average, would behave under certain circumstances, okay? So I know we like to relate a lot of psychology concepts to our own life. And when you read through some of these classic studies and learn about what people have done when they're participating in these studies or many of these world events and think, well, that would never happen to me. I would never respond that way. Well, that's not really the point. The point is, is that much of the time, what many of these studies are showing, sometimes the majority of the time, three out of four people, two out of three people, actually in a laboratory condition, behaved a certain way under those circumstances, right? So there's no way to predict whether you, again, with your age and background and gender and all those things, education level, would respond in that situation. But then again, the, the final answer is that we don't know until you're actually in that situation. Because most people that are given a survey, let's say about a classic study they read about and said, well, what do you think you would do? You know, those are very popular discussion questions in psychology classes. What do you think you would have done? I don't really ask that anymore because the ultimate answer is I don't know. I don't know how I would respond if placed under that situation with, a, with an authority figure telling me to zap somebody with 400 volts of electricity. Okay, we'll get to that. You know, we just don't know until you're placed under that duress and that circumstance. We just don't know how we're going to respond. Okay, so... How does the average person respond under a certain set of situations? Now, social psychology is a wonderful field because almost any current event, any environment, your workplace, your home life, society level, uh, politics, we can apply social psychological principles to what is happening. Okay, uh, And we'll take a somewhat deep dive. No, I can't really say that because I can't really take a deep dive into any particular subject, but we will cover prejudice and discrimination and racism a little bit as well. All right, so social psychology is about looking at how we interact with other people. Again, how does it affect us as an individual, right? How we're affected by our social environment, okay? And so that has to do with our thinking, our emotions, our actions, how we're influenced by social situations, right? So one level of focus is uh, amongst uh, social psycholo psychological research is called intrapersonal topics. That's actually one word, intrapersonal, which means what's happening within the person. Emotions, attitudes, your social cognition, which means how you think about yourself, how you're thinking about others. And then there's interpersonal topics, right? When we're placed in a situation 
you know, in a particular environment, someone's in need of help, how, how would you as the observer, as an individual, respond, right? Will you pass that person by, make up a reason as to maybe that person doesn't need help, maybe interprets the situation, and that decides, helps you decide whether or not to help someone. Um, prejudice and discrimination has to do with our relationships with other people, right? And again, I may or may not cover everything you see in the video version of these slides, okay? So some of the topics I may uh, skip over a little bit. All right, now let's talk first about um, attribution theory, and we'll cover that on the next slide coming up. But when we explain other people's behavior, now I want you to think about yourself in this situation. Do you judge people's behavior by their circumstances? Or do you judge and explain someone else's behavior based on something internal about them? Okay? So social psychologists tend to be situationists, right? Situationism is the perspective that how we behave, right, is determined by our surroundings and our immediate social environment, right? So our situation can have an influence, great influence on our individual actions. Whereas a dispositionist or dispositionism is the perspective that our behavior is determined by internal factors such as your personality traits or your temperament, whether you're a calm person or excitable person, okay? So dispositionism is fairly common in places like the U.S. Personality psychologists would focus on that, that your behavior is due to your personality traits, right? We've talked about that in the chapter on personality theories. Social psychologists tend to focus on the situation, but they also consider the individual too. So they're a little bit of both, but they lean more toward the situation. So I want you to think about the phrase, the power of the situation, right? There used to be a public television series called Discovering Psychology, and the theme throughout, and it was hosted by a social psychologist, Dr. Philip Zimbardo, uh, who we'll talk about later. The theme throughout those the series was the power of the situation that a lot of times we're not aware that situational forces are leading us to act in a certain way. So let me give you a very, very simple example. When you are driving your vehicle, right, and you're driving erratically, very fast, right? It doesn't take much for someone to drive very dangerously. All it takes is for someone to look at their watch and know that they're probably going to be late for work, right? And their driving behavior will totally change. They may see themselves as a safe driver, but their driving behavior is being dictated by their situation. Something as simple as running late. Another observer will see you driving that way and think, wow, what an idiot, you know? Why are you driving that way, okay? And make a different assumption, different kind of judgment than your own judgment, okay? So we'll take a look at that. So think about it. When you judge people's behavior, whoever they are, a famous person or a family member, and you're thinking to yourself, why did they do this? Do you focus on their situation? Or do you focus on their disposition, something about them internally? 
It could be anything like watching sports. Oh, that's a great athlete. I wonder if they're such a great athlete because of their coaching, of the high school coach they had and the peewee football coach they had, you know, and all those all those different environmental factors, right? The school they went to, that environment. Or do you think, wow, they must have been born with those traits, right? Uh, must be that person that has strong motivational factors to become a great athlete. Then you're a dispositionist, right? Um, and so that is that is something to keep in mind as we make judgments about other people's behavior. Now, there are some trends that have been measured by social psychologists, and this trend is called the fundamental attribution error, okay? Now, to make an attribution is simply to try to explain someone's behavior, right? Just to come up with a reason. That, that act alone, that thinking action is called an attribution. And so what does it mean to make an attribution error? What it means is that there seems to be a pattern that when we explain someone else's behavior, we tend to overemphasize those dispositional or internal factors, right? So if I, as an instructor, look at a student's test score and, and assume that, oh, someone who made 100, they must be really smart, right? Being smart is an internal attribute. It's a dispositional trait, right? It's not a circumstance. Um, and I can make the other explanation, right? If someone made a low score, I might think, wow, that's, that student's not smart, Okay, to be polite about it, okay? And that that's a judgment that someone could make. And those are dispositional judgments. So the fact that someone would lean on those more often, that's called the fundamental attribution error. So let's think about why that's an error, why that's often a mistake. And that's because oftentimes we don't know or we fail to acknowledge someone else's circumstance, right? So we're not focused on situational factors, that would lead to that person's behaving a certain way. Okay? And so oftentimes we make judgments like that about homeless people, right? People who are less fortunate, people who live in poor countries, living in certain types of environments, uh, not having certain types of clothing or shoes to wear, right? And whether you're a situationist or dispositionist can also affect your political perspective as well, right? If you believe that poor people are poor because they are lazy, right? That is a dispositional explanation, right? You're focused on someone's traits, their laziness, their lack of motivation. They don't work hard, right? Um, then that can lead you to a particular per political perspective, right? But if you believe that it's circumstances, it's the system, it's the environment, that makes it difficult for someone to get ahead and puts them in poverty, it makes it difficult for them to climb out of poverty, then you're a situationist, right? And it's possible you can be a little bit of both, obviously. Okay? So the fundamental attribution error is a tendency, according to research that we have, to overuse these internal explanations, good or bad, okay, when explaining someone else's behavior. All right, so this idea of the fundamental attribution error is somewhat universal, but culture plays a great part of this. Now, we've talked about this 
difference before of the individualistic versus collectivistic culture, right? So in an individualistic culture, we are more likely to commit the fundamental attribution error because our focus is the individual. So therefore, we're going to see someone's actions coming from within that person. Whereas in collectivistic cultures, like many Asian cultures, the focus is at the group level. The focus is on relationships, right? So a person within that cultural context would explain things based on their relationship with others, based on their circumstances, okay? So they're less likely to lean on the fundamental attribution error, okay, than people in Western societies. All right, another example of attribution is the actor-observer bias, okay? And this has a little bit to do with that driving example I just gave you. So the actor-observer, and you yourself are the actor, right? And so what this is saying is that we tend to explain our own behavior due to situational forces, right? I am driving fast because I am late. That's a situational force. But when I'm observing someone else driving fast, it's because they're an idiot and they're, they're a jerk and they're driving fast because they're stupid, okay? And so, again, this is committing that fundamental attribution for others, but we don't commit the fundamental attribution error for ourselves, okay? Now, another example of comparing how we make attributions is called a self-serving bias, right? So this is making explanations to our advantage when talking about ourselves or thinking about our own behavior. So for example, if I do well, let's say I record a podcast and I have a thousand, two thousand people listen to it on one day, which would be amazing, right? And that so that success, if I were thinking in a self-serving bias sort of way, I would think that, well, I'm awesome. Right? That was just me. I'm I'm so talented, right? I'm the one who caused that successful outcome. But in the same vein, if I produce a podcast and nobody listened to it, it's like, what happened? Isn't it out there? Where are my listeners, right? Then I would make a different explanation. I would make a situational explanation, right? That's external. Blame it on some other circumstance. Well, maybe because there's too much going on and people are busy, right? Not because I'm a failure or that I'm not talented, right? So you can see how this self-serving bias is owning one's successes but blaming, externalizing failure. Okay, it's a pattern of, of uh, these attributions that protects our own self-esteem so we can feel good about ourselves. So see if you can catch yourself. Have you ever done that before? Where, you know, you don't say when you do well at something, let's say you win a tennis match or something or a sports game, do you say, oh, that was just luck, right? Or the other team was bad that day. Or do you think, oh, I had a good game, right? And if your team loses, how do you explain that? So slow down these kinds of things. Uh, be more self-aware, and you can catch yourself making these kinds of attributions. It's kind of interesting. All right, so let's uh, provide another example. And this one's called the just world hypothesis and some textbooks may call it the just world theory, okay? It's kind of interchangeable. But it's the basic premise that a lot of people have 
where they believe that the world has some sort of built-in justice. Now, what I mean by that is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. You know, that the world is fundamentally a fair place, right? And you can see this when you're watching a film, like a James Bond film or something, right, where there's a villain who's really, really evil, right? And at the end, they kind of get it somehow. They blow up. You know, they have some dramatic death at the end. And we're supposed to feel good about that, right? Because that evil person deserved that outcome and the good guy is supposed to live right that's why we have a hard time dealing with events that occur that are that don't fit into this model like a child um, killed in an accident right because we we don't believe that children deserve to die okay so we have a harder time for that uh, and so one possible outcome for that is how do we think about people who are poor? Do they deserve to be poor? Do they deserve that outcome? Right? Um, think about police shootings of unarmed black people. Right? If you think through the lens of the just world hypothesis that people get what they deserve, good people don't get shot by police. Therefore, if you hold on to that structure, that mental model then that person must have been have something bad about them where they deserved that kind of treatment right they brought it upon themselves and there's another term for that and that's called blaming the victim right so if you think about our attitudes towards sexual assault or rape okay that uh, we've come a long way in our thinking about it right because the traditional thinking years ago was that well a victim, male or female, but we traditionally think of it as a female person, what did they do? Our mind wanders towards what did the victim do to deserve that fate to be attacked, right? How were they drinking? We focus so much on their behavior, and lawyers tend to do that in the past, right? What's your sexual history? What's the victim's clothing? Did they lead them on? Did they, you know, what, kind, what were their actions? as opposed to focusing more attention on the perpetrator's actions, you see. So the just world hypothesis, I think you see it all around us in how we make and how people make judgments of others, right, where we tend not to focus enough on the situations that people are under, that we tend to blame people, for example, in poverty for their own circumstances, that it's internal. It's a lack of hard work, lack of, well, but if you look at where a per poor person might live, right, in an impoverished area with very few opportunities, and when the home values are very low, then the tax base is low, so less money goes to schools, right, less money to hire good teachers, okay, ends up in a place with a higher crime rate, right, where there are fewer opportunities for young people, but, you know, if, some people don't look at all those circumstances. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of mental work to learn about one's circumstances. But it's a lot easier and a lot quicker mentally for us to make a negative, especially negative, dispositional attribution. Oh, poor people are lazy. Wow, that was, you know, really easy and quick, right, to make that kind of judgment. It took no mental effort whatsoever. But to understand one's circumstance takes a lot of effort, right? Which could explain why 
in an individualistic culture, we tend to lean toward the fundamental attribution error, which can lead toward self-serving bias, right? Um, the just world hypothesis and blaming the victim. All right, shifting gears a little bit, and let's talk about our social roles, okay? Um, and a role is basically like a title that we have, right? And what comes with that title in terms of a set of behaviors, what you're expected to do, some social role uh, expectations, right? Now, you can probably name all the different social roles you belong to. For example, myself, I'm an instructor. That's one of my work roles, right? I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a brother, right? Um, and so in each of these roles, I have a set of expectations. I would not behave the same way around my father than I would around my child, right? Or around my spouse or around my friends, right? We seem to put on different caps in various circumstances depending on our role, um, and so that's what a social role is. And it's largely dictated by our culture in terms of what, how we're expected to behave. So an extension of a social role has to do with social norms, right? So it's what's considered appropriate and, accept and acceptable behavior for the members of a particular group in a, in a particular circumstance, right? How are we supposed to behave? And social norms, you can think of it as also as cultural norms. And I can tell you some examples. My wife and their family is from the country of Myanmar, okay? And, uh, and I'm pronouncing it the Americanish way, right? And I learned early on when we were dating and spending time in her family's home when I'm visiting that so many rules... So many of the social, cultural norms are so different than what I'm used to. Now, I'm Taiwanese-American. I'm thinking, okay, well, Asian's Asian. You know, we have a lot of overlap, right? But, wow, there, there are so many things that were so different. For example, and, and I can make a long list of these, right? You cannot use your foot to as a pointer, right? So your feet are the lowest part of your body. It touches the earth, right? So your, the bottom of your feet are very dirty, right? So you don't ever use that to point, like, at a person. It's like, oh, where's what? Where's so-and-so? And use your foot to point, right? That's extremely rude. Right? I didn't know that, right? You don't put your feet on a coffee table. You never use your feet to touch a book, right? Because books are held in high esteem. So you don't ever use the dirtiest part of your body, well, that's debatable what's the dirtiest part of your body, <laughs> uh, objectively speaking. But, you know, you don't use the bottom of your foot to touch something like a book, right? And there, there are many more examples like that, but uh, that's just one I wanted to sh show you in terms of social norms. And But one thing we do have in common, my wife and I, is that, you know, from you know, amongst many Asian cultures is that we don't wear shoes or outdoor shoes inside the house, right? And that's why it's just sort of mind-boggling when we were growing up. We were uh, recounting our childhood and hanging out with friends, um, many of them who are white Americans or, or whatnot, and their habit is to wear shoes in the house. And I remember going to a friend, my friend David's house during high school, 
and we would hang out. And I remember seeing him, you know, we'd hang out in his bedroom, you know, just talking. And he, he jumps on his bed with his shoes on. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, what the heck? That's nasty, right? So, and just recently we've been cleaning out a relative's home and we rented a steam cleaner, you know, it was one of those carpet cleaners. And the house really wasn't that dirty. It was just uninhabited for a few years, just empty. I mean, even after running it over three times in one room, and the, the dirty water, right, after the shampooing of the carpet was so dirty, right? And I'm thinking, this is a household where they didn't even wear shoes in the house. So think about a household where you have wall-to-wall -wall carpeting and you're wearing shoes all over the place from the outside. That's really nasty. See, in a typical Taiwanese household, especially in Taiwan, right, is that you take off your shoes outside the front door, right? Sometimes there's a shoe rack right outside or right inside the house in like the, the little uh, foyer or whatever you want to call it, right? And then you put on indoor slippers, okay? So if, if you're a good host and running your household well, you should have, you know, 20 pairs of slippers, right? Various sizes when you have guests. So all the guests can wear slippers, okay? All right, so... Sometimes you can pick out your favorite ones, you know, in your own home, right? And those are your slippers. Okay, so you have indoor slippers. But then if you have a backyard or a stairwell, right, or a balcony, then there are outdoor slippers for that area, right? So there's a constant, and you know who's home and who's not home by looking at the slippers, right? <laughs> and, uh, okay, all right, so those are social norms, right? Okay, so what's a social script? A script Sounds like what it is, right? Think about a movie script. It's a set of behaviors, a sequence of, of things happening that's defined by your society, right? So how are you supposed to behave at a, at a job interview? In America, you dress up well in your work attire, right? For a man, it's a suit and tie. For a lady, it's probably another lady suit and a tie, right? Maybe not a tie, but, you know, a nice business suit. And when you meet the person you're interviewing, you give them a very firm handshake, that's the American way, right? That's the American script as well as a social norm. Okay. Well, I remember meeting a friend named Jackie, and he's from Hong Kong. Okay, not that Jackie. Okay, just another Jackie from Hong Kong. And I remember when I first met him, I, I, I shook his hand, you know, the, the traditional American way, right, where you lower your voice and you give a hard grip to show your dominance, right? And I nearly crushed his knuckles. Not because I'm just a strong guy, right? I'm actually not, okay? But because the Hong Kong, and for in many Asian countries, the greeting is that you offer a gentle handshake. You don't want to come across as aggressive, right? Right? The American handshake is not necessarily aggressive, but it's assertive, right? You, you don't want to have cold wet clammy hands and barely touch the person you want to really just hold their hands firmly right and uh and then you feel the feedback of the other person's hand okay so that's that's sort of the the norm and so i was a little taken aback i was like oh yeah i forgot you know i was being very american at that moment in greeting jackie and just about had my own international incident with this person okay and so imagine being a diplomat you have to learn about these social norms in that particular country that you're visiting so you don't mess up, 
you know, like pointing your feet at people. Okay. All right. So another example of a script is a restaurant script, right? Have you visited another country or just another part of the country? You go into a restaurant you're not familiar with. The first thing you have to think of is what is the script? Do I stand in line, order, and then pay? Or do I sit down, order, and pay when I leave, right? Coffee shops often have different scripts and different set of rules. All right. So an extension of the idea of social roles and norms and scripts is the Stanford Prison Experiment in the early 1970s by the famous Stanford social psychologist, Dr. Philip Zimbardo. I actually met him in person at a psychology convention in New Orleans, and he signed a book that I bought that a group of Stanford psychologists wrote called The Psychology of Terrorism. And so um, we watched a documentary about the Stanford Prison Experiment. I believe it's on Netflix. I'm not sure, but you can look for it. Uh, it's a docudrama, okay, which I thought was pretty well done. And I saw Dr. Zimbardo. He's like a rock star okay, in psychology. So I, was, I felt like a groupie. And I was thinking, why is there not a crowd around this guy? He was just sitting there by himself at a convention, right? So I approached him. I had my book and asked him to sign in. He was very gracious. He signed and had a picture taken, and I can't find the damn picture. Okay, but I'll find it one day. My wife was there. She took the picture of the two of us, right? So I had a, take my, a take picture taken with, you know, the psychology rock star. And I I look, I, after we watched the documentary, my daughter, who's taking some college classes now, and I told her, I thought I told her before that, oh, yeah, you know, I met Dr. Zimbardo in person. She's like, what, really? <laughs> she was all excited, like I met Elvis, right? And and so, yeah, I got the book, and, you know, he signed it. He misspelled my name, but that's okay. And he said, hey, you know. Um, and so she was really thrilled by that. Like, wow. It's like I have some street cred or something. Okay, so what was the Stanford Prison Experiment? Now, again, we can go into a deep dive, and I can talk about this for hours, but in essence, this really wasn't an experiment. It was more of a like a simulation. What he did was he converted the basement of the Stanford Psychology Department during a summer session, right, where there are very few people on campus, and converted it into a mock prison. He wanted to see what would happen to people, um, the volunteers who, at a flip of a coin, remember we call that random assignment, assign the role of prisoner, assign the role of prison guard. You know, he was going to run it for a few weeks. But in the end, what happened was he had to shut it down after six days. And again, we can go into a lot of detail here, but the, the bottom line was that these young men were psychologically tested. There were really no discernible differences personality-wise between the group that ended up being placed in the condition uh, of the uh, prisoner right, versus those who were and they had uniforms for the prisoners and prison guards. The prison guards had a billy stick, right? Even though they were told, of course, you can't hit people. Some of the prison guards, because of the role, the social role, right? And they were egged on a little bit by people running the study, including Dr. Zimbardo, who played the prison warden, which was a big mistake, right? He's supposed to be objective, but he actually took on a role of his own and got immersed in this alternate reality, so over time, the simulation became more and more real to the point where the prisoners, these young men, normal, healthy, functioning young men, started to have a variety of reactions of anxiety or 
uh, help feelings of helplessness, right? Uh, when they tried to get out and couldn't get out, right? So they really created a very somewhat realistic environment where psychologically they all felt trapped. Now, of course, this violated many, many ethical standards in psychological research. You know, you're not supposed to cause harm, first of all, right? And a volunteer may quit at any time. You're supposed to make it easy for them to quit. But in this experiment or simulation, they made it very difficult. They had to go through a parole hearing, right, where they were denied parole. And so many of them started thinking, like, wow, this is, they lost all aspects of objective thinking and, and what objective reality was and they were immersed in this prison environment and some of the prison guards not everyone but some of the prison guards became very sadistic just became very abusive because of the role that they were given these fancy sunglasses you know in the uniform and a stick right so the conclusion basically was that the social situation again the power of the situation and the social roles that one was given Putting on a uniform can affect your personality, your thinking, your attitudes, and your behavior. So someone who's completely nice and kind at home would put on their work uniform and then behave in a certain way that's very unlike them. Now, we can expand this, right? And Philip Zimbardo actually became an expert witness during the time where the Abu Ghraib prison scandal occurred, right? And this is where a uh, prison, a rural prison run during a time of war where uh, prisoners were abused and there, there was photographs taken of really severe abuse by the prison guards. And so who else would be a better expert than Dr. Zimbardo to help explain the dynamics of how this could occur, right? Um, that it may not be that the army recruited the military recruited sadistic people, right? That's a dispositionist explanation. So those prison guards were not born sadistic. They didn't happen to recruit sadistic evil people who acted in sadistic evil ways in the experiment. These are normal, healthy young people who acted in a way that's according to the role. Now, can we apply this concept to help explain what's happening when it comes to law enforcement, where again, not all, not even the majority, but some would act out in an abusive way, abusing their authority because of the authority that the uniform and the role gives them, right? Where they may not have that kind of behavior at home or amongst their friends, right? But on the job, it somehow affects them psychologically because of the power that's given in that role. All right, let's talk about um, what our attitudes are. So we're taking a shift here. And our, if you think about what an attitude is, I know we have our sort of everyday definition of what an attitude is. is basically, it's how we evaluate another person, some idea, or an object, right? So our evaluations of those things can be positive or negative. Basically, it's our attitudes towards something, right? Our thinking about something our feelings about something. It's all part of our attitude. Okay? Our attitudes can be influenced by external things, can be influenced by our personality, right? 
And so there are three different components to our attitude. There's the affective component. That's a very psychological word I'd like you to know. Affective, not effective, right? It's affective with an A. And whenever you see the word affect, that refers to our emotions, right? So an affective component is our feelings. Sometimes psychologists in counseling and therapy would use the term negative affect. My patient is exhibiting negative affect. That means a negative emotional expression. Okay, If you're experiencing positive affect, it means you're happy. Okay? So the second component is the behavioral component. Right, Our attitudes can lead us to behave in a certain way. That's pretty obvious, right? If you have a positive attitude towards people, like restaurant workers, you will behave kindly toward them when you meet them. The third component of our attitude has to do with cognitive the cognitive component is how we think. So it has to do with our set of beliefs and knowledge, maybe, about the person or an idea or, obje or object, right? Uh, we have attitudes about cities. You know, what are your feelings about New York? Do you love or hate it, right? What are your feelings about this sports team, right? This, these are all about our attitudes, okay? Um, how do you feel about uh, Hispanic people? How do you feel about Asian people, older people, right? So we have an affective component, our feelings, behavioral component, right, and also our cognitive component of our attitudes. Now, this is a very interesting idea I want you to think about, and this is a very famous idea or concept or theory, let's call it a theory in social psychology called cognitive dissonance. Okay? Now, I want you to know that in modern social psychology, there are a lot of competing theories to help explain the same thing, Okay, but we'll just go with the lenses of Leon Festinger, who uh, came up with cognitive dissonance theory. Now let's focus on the, what this means. The word dissonance has to do with um, a sense of discomfort, right? Psychological discomfort when we have two or more conflicting attitudes, behaviors, or thoughts in our mind, okay? So we're juggling inconsistent attitudes or thoughts in our mind. That's called cognitive dissonance. Okay, so this would help by thinking about some examples, right? Um, and the example from the textbook is that one thought you have, piece of knowledge, is that cigarette smoking is bad for you, but you smoke anyway, right? So those two things, the action of smoking, the belief, right, that the understanding, the information that smoking is unhealthy, those two things are going to cause dissonance in someone. Smoking is bad for me, but I'm a smoker. So think about how someone has to resolve that, right? So the underlying understanding is that we want this dissonance to go away. We, don't, we like to live mentally at a level of peace, the least amount of dissonance as possible. In other words, we don't want to be living like a hypocrite. We don't like this hypocr hypocrisy, right? I'm telling people that smoking's bad, but yet I smoke, right? Well, one way to do that is that you have to change one of those two things to get rid of the dissonance, right? So one is you can quit smoking. So I believe smoking is bad. I don't smoke. Hey, no dissonance, right? Those two things jive okay who says the word jive anymore sorry about that okay well let's say you keep smoking so you don't change that then what's left to change 
your attitude about smoking. So you rationalize, deny it, saying that, well, there's no real hard evidence that smoking's bad for you. Oh, you know, they don't know. Maybe I have good genes. Maybe it won't affect me, right? So as long as you create that rationale or a reason, change the thought pattern, then it becomes consistent with the action of smoking. Now, again, we can apply this to almost anything, right? Someone doesn't pay their taxes, right? But yet, not paying the taxes is illegal, right? That I'm obligated to pay this tax. Well, that's that's a dissonance right there. I'm supposed to pay my taxes, but I'm not paying them, right? Or I'm not a cheater and I'm cheating on my taxes. Okay. Well, one way to resolve that is to pay your taxes, and then you're fine, right? I owe taxes. I paid my taxes. Well, what if you continue to not pay your taxes? Then you have to change the thought of what taxes are. So, what do some people do? Taxes are unfair. The government just wastes my money. Why should I pay the government? I earned this money, right? Um, my tax is just going to go for all these causes I don't believe in. Right? I don't send my kids to public school. Why should I pay public, public school tax, right? And so this is an example of trying to resolve. So if you think about what attitudes are, oftentimes our attitudes can change, and this is what cognitive distance is all about. We usually think of attitudes leading to action, right? Well, if you believe in this, you're going to act that way. What Leon Fessinger found out is that you can change one's action, and the changing of the action leads to a change in behavior because of this idea that we like to be consistent. So, for example, if, you, if a neighborhood starts to pass out recycling bins, and you happen to be a person who doesn't really believe in recycling, you know, this is all a farce, you know, it doesn't matter anyway, you know, one person doesn't make a difference, right? You believe in that. And you get a recycling bin, okay? So what happens is that, well, you can continue to just leave that recycling bin at your house and never use it, right? That's consistent, right, with your beliefs about recycling is not useful, waste of time. But what if the city gave a very small incentive to recycle, you know, maybe they scan the barcodes. My sister's neighborhood, they do that. They scan the barcodes of your recycling bin, and they actually weigh it when they pick it up. The machine picks it up, it weighs it, scans the barcode, and the more weight in your bin, the, the more bonus points you get, okay? Uh, you collect points that you can trade for things, okay? Um, like reward points, okay? positive reinforcement, right? So let's say someone decides to do that, not because they believe in recycling, but they want some points. Like, hey, you know, I'll get into this scheme. And one of my sister's neighbors was actually caught uh, stealing newspapers out of someone else's bin and putting it in their own. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's come down to, right? Okay, so that person is recycling, but they don't believe in recycling, right? That's going to cause dissonance. My recycling bin is out there, but... If they just say to themselves, I'm not doing this because of the environment, I'm doing this because I want points, then there's no dissonance, right? I am recycling for points. But what if the points are so minor, right, that they forget that they're doing it for points? Then over time, what happens is the act of pushing that recycling bin out to the curb is going to lead to a change in the belief that, oh, recycling is good. I do it. My neighbors do it, right? I'm doing my civic duty. And that can actually happen, right? 
Okay, so let's move on. And uh, let's talk about um, an example where our actions affect our attitude. And again, this has to do with cognitive dissonance. And this is an experiment um, back in the 1950s. Now, a lot of these classic studies like Zimbardo and others we're going to talk about happened early on in the field of social psychology actually rose and took off after World War II and because of Nazism, right? Because of the Holocaust and trying to understand human behavior. So social psychology began to study, you know, why humans behave this way. So research and conformity, obedience, right? Attitudes just took off stereotyping prejudice all this research helping behavior just took off in the field of social psychology in the 50s 60s and 70s and you can give credit to Hitler because of that extreme social event it created a curiosity among social psychologists to try to understand so it almost gave birth to the field of social psychology okay a little backstory there all right so let's talk about the effect of uh, initiation you know, why is it that colleges have to put their um, recruits through hazing, right? And if you know any former college students, college grads who are very loyal to their fraternity or sorority, it could be explained through effort justification, right? And so through an experiment in the 1950s by Aronson, Elliot Aronson and Mills, right, they actually put students in different con experimental conditions to enter a uh, enter a discussion group okay so it wasn't really about fraternities and sororities but it was sort of a simulation so this is, this is called a laboratory study so in one condition and then they were asked you know how much do you like this group this group activity right so what the group activity was it doesn't matter but one group had no initiation, it was easy, and the second group they had an easy initiation to get into the group, and the third group they had to go through some hoops, and difficult initiation to become a part of the group, right? And their ratings, uh, their, their attitudes towards the group changes based on how much more effort they had to expend to get into a group, right? And so if and, and, and even though a fraternity or sorority is maybe thinking about this consciously or rationally, there really is an effect there because if a recruit goes through a really extremely embarrassing, hazing circumstance and gets accepted, right, then that person can really highly value that group. It's like, yeah, I almost died to get in this group, right? So think about basic training in the military if it wasn't so difficult right um would would our military personnel post military training let's say whether they serve combat or didn't especially if they serve combat then there's a lot of effort justification right a lot of bonding that goes on through that experience then they become tied right to the members of that group to their platoon um but if you got in so easily, you just sign a piece of paper to get in to join a group, right? There's no effort involved, so why should I value it highly, right? So 
if you think about the effort to get into a group as one thing, right, the behavior, and then the second part of it is your attitude toward the group, right? If the effort was low, then the value towards the group is going to be low. That's consistent. If the effort was high, right, then you're going to evaluate highly. Because let's think about the contrast. If you almost died to join your fraternity, are you really going to see your fraternity as like no big deal? No. It's like I almost went through hell to get be a part of this group. Of course, this group is very special to me. right? So the harder you work towards something, and the more you can evaluate it. Have you ever seen graduation ceremonies, right? High school graduation ceremonies where some people cross the stage, you hardly hear any excitement. It's like, yeah, I know, I'm going to college, so, you know, just got to walk across the stage to get this piece of paper because my parents forced me to be here. It's no big deal. But then you see others cross the stage, and then there's like a big section of people just cheering, right? Because maybe they were the first person in their, their family to reach that level of education. Right? And the same for college education, right? Maybe you're a first-generation high school or college graduate. So within that family, there's a lot of effort amongst the family members and that individual to reach that stage of accomplishment. So then that accomplishment becomes much more valuable. Ask any professional athlete how they view their championship ring or their trophy, right? They're going to see it with high regard because of the effort that went through. Now, you don't even have to be a professional athlete to even understand this. My friends and I, uh, our community, the Taiwanese community in Texas, we had a softball tournament every Labor Day because there's a Taiwanese association gathering, like a social gathering, where people just get together and talk about stuff. And then one year they decided to have a friendly softball tournament. Well, that softball tournament suddenly grew to become a big thing where it became the focus. So all summer long, we just practice week after week, right, uh, playing scrimmage games against other people in the park, right, just in practice until our arms fell off, okay? And so there's a lot of effort that every week we're practicing so hard, and then come September, we're all excited. We bought real uniforms and caps, matching caps, and played, and almost every year we come up third place, second place. We're like, ah! Then one year we won first place, and wow, you know, we really valued that. Even though it's really nothing, we didn't win any money, right? It was It was more of a sort of a psychological, spiritual kind of thing, you know, to, that we that we beat this team that we've always tried to beat, and we could never beat them. The other team, their name was the Boneheads. You know, we could never beat the Boneheads from Houston, right? And we were the North Texas team, and uh, we were the underdogs every year. So anyway, so if you ever participated in something even as innocuous, as innocent as a Taiwanese Association Softball League, right, we place so much importance on it. All that effort, we have to justify that effort. We didn't just work all that hard for a little plastic trophy, right? No. Winning was everything. Okay? So that's effort justification. All right, let's shift gears again and talk about a slightly different uh, aspect of attitudes, but still within the world of attitudes and changing attitudes, and that's persuasion. right? And I'm recording this in the year 2020, the election year presidential election and there are political ads on all the time right recently and so it got me thinking well i wonder what strategy this candidate is using in their political ads and understanding these again very basic principles of persuasion from psychological research can help us right so what is persuasion is the process of trying to change our attitudes 
right? based on some sort of communication, right? That makes sense. Changing our attitudes based on some sort of communication. So whether it's person to person, right? You're discussing something with someone through email, face to face, right? Could be within a classroom. You go in with one attitude, you come out with your mind changed. Maybe you watch a documentary film it's like, oh, I didn't know that before. Oh, it totally changes my view on mass incarceration, for example. Okay, and uh, or systemic racism. Okay? So maybe you're in a position where you're trying to sell a product or you're trying to sell an idea or you have a cause or a political candidate. How do you change attitudes? And how do you get those attitudes to lead to a behavior like voting? Right. So this is all around us. This is real stuff. Okay, that sounded smart. <laughs> the real stuff. Okay, so um, Richard Petty and uh, Cassiopo, oh, I forgot his first name, okay, in the mid-80s came up with what's called the elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. Elaboration likelihood model of persuasion. And what they found was that there are two paths of persuasion or two routes, okay? And... The effect of the persuasion, whether it's long-term or short-term, depends on which route was used by the person trying to persuade. Okay, So one type of persuasion is called the central route of persuasion. Okay, Central route. So let me describe this. This is basically the thinking side. Okay? It's all about the facts. Let me lay down the facts for you, the statistics. Let me lay down the logic, make you think. Right, So the effectiveness of this kind of persuasion depends on how good your information is, right? If it seems reliable, seems factual, right? And also there are audience factors. So if you're trying to persuade an audience, and if your audience is analytical, they're patient, they're open and willing to listen, they have the time to process what you're trying to tell them, then the central route of persuasion can be very effective. So I think about national public radio as a good example of that, or public television. When I was younger and I would listen to NPR or watch public television news, I would think, wow, this is just so boring. The pace is slow. Each news story lasts for 10 minutes. It's like, come on, right? Whereas you watch the evening news, local evening news, that lasts for probably 20 minutes if you include commercials. Right? It's supposed to be a 30-minute news. And then each story is like literally 30 seconds. Right, A lot of graphics, you know, loud noises. Right? Okay. And a lot of excitement. Okay. Um, you can tell that there's, there's a different strategy involved. Right? NPR and public radio, they're using the central route of persuasion. They're explaining things slowly, using factual information. Right? And the typical NPR listener probably has a slightly higher education level. They're patient. They're willing to think things through, analyze the evidence. Okay, so another route of persuasion, this is where I think most political ads fall into. And this is called the peripheral route of persuasion. Okay, so this is more indirect. It's not so much vote for me because these are the 10 things that I believe in and let me spend 30 minutes discussing my policy decision, uh, positions. This is more about uh, vote for me because the other person's a bad, evil guy. Right? Now, in the uh, 
in our area in, in Texas, there was a political ad. And during political season, you'll see this ad for the same candidate back to back to back. But one is funded by people who are pro candidate and those who are anti this candidate. And it's really amusing to watch these ads literally back to back to back because the first one, let's say this is the pro candidate, you know, I approve this message, right? Oh, Jack Chuang, I have all this experience, uh, you know, and, uh, and the video is just a lot of positive imagery with family, blue sky, right? Happy, smiling people. Right? Um, I'm in a well-dressed suit. Okay, looks like I'm working hard, right? I approve this message, right? And then the very next ad, oh, Jack Chuang was found dealing cocaine and having wild cocaine parties. And this is actually, this is actually one of the ads in the Houston area that were an opposition uh, ad for a particular candidate literally used that as an example. And the imagery, right? They take the worst photos of the opposition as possible. They use some sort of shading techniques where the color is dark, right? And uh, and the font size, and then the the narrator, right? It's like the guy from the movies, right? Jack Chong, you cannot trust this man, you know. Uh, he is too radical. Oh my gosh, you know, he's like those Californians, and it made me laugh because if you actually just think about the information presented, right? You know that is not really they're not really trying to persuade you with factual information what they're trying to do is to scare you they're trying to evoke emotion so that's what the peripheral route is it's anything other than the central route anything other than the pure logic and the facts so they try to evoke emotions right whether they try to associate positivity or negativity right depending on their position um that's why celebrity endorsements right if you think about it, who cares if Tom Hanks endorses this candidate, right? Uh, but if I like Tom Hanks, and I think he's a good guy, and he likes this candidate, then I'm thinking, oh, maybe I should too, right? Maybe I should eat more Jello if this actor promotes it. Or, you know? Okay, so you can tell that it's not so much about logic. It's all about association and positive emotion, right? Using sex and advertising, same thing, right? There's no logic involved. There's, you know, sometimes some advertisers go really far-fetched. It's like they're selling, I don't know, window treatment or something, window blinds and curtains, and they have this woman in a bikini. He's like, what the heck? You know? So it's not about the logic. It's just for people to stare at the screen and go, oh, wow, that's a beautiful person. I better buy some blinds. Okay? And what they found in their research was that when you use the peripheral route of persuasion, right, using good looks and all those kinds of things um, to persuade someone, it can be effective, but it's very short-term, right? You have very short-term sort of effects, like, oh, you know, because it elicits an emotional response. It's like, oh, yeah, those damn liberals, you know, oh, those damn conservatives, right? It elicits an emotional response. Whereas the central route of persuasion is much more long-lasting because... Um, when you put more thinking into a subject, right, then the consequence of that persuasion lasts a lot longer, okay, which kind of makes sense. All right, so this is what I just talked about in this particular slide. So the audience factor, again, 
the central route of persuasion depends on an audience or a person listening that they're motivated and analytical. So that's why TV ads tend not to be central because they know that these TV ads are reaching everybody, right? Whereas public television, they're reaching public television viewers who tend to be very patient and slightly higher education, right? And they're willing to, you know, listen to the arguments. Um, but the, that's why you see a lot of very short 15-second commercials that are really techniques that are belong in the peripheral route, right? So these are audience members who are not as motivated, not as analytical, right? Who um, take a little bit less effort, and they're persuaded by the imagery of things, right? The emotions of things. And they have more of a temporary change in their attitude, right? All right, so speaking of persuasion, let's talk about the foot-in-the-door technique. Now, if you're interested in this kind of stuff, there's a great book written by uh, Robert Cialdini, C-I-A-L-D-I-N-I, Cialdini, right? And he wrote a, a really the, one of the seminal books about persuasion. And what I like about his story is that as a social psychologist, he worked in a lot of odd jobs that, that are mostly sales positions, like door-to-door salesmen. And he learned a lot of these sales techniques and then ran laboratory studies to try to confirm them. And one of them was the foot in the door technique. And this has a lot to do with cognitive dissonance, right? The fact that we want to be consistent. So what he found was that when someone agrees to a very small request, right? And sometimes it's easy to agree to a small request. There's no big deal. It's something small. Like, hey, why don't you take this sticker for this candidate? You know, that kind of thing. Would you mind putting a small sign on a window, right? And then later on, you go to that person who said yes before and say, oh, can I put this big yard sign in your yard, right? When they compared two groups, one group where they started with the sticker, then they went back with the big yard sign versus another neighborhood where they actually just went first right away with the yard, large yard sign, the exact same yard sign, right? Those who did not get the sticker first, many of them said no to the yard sign. So are you kidding me? I'm not going to put that big monstrosity in my front yard. Get away, right? But those who said yes to a little sticker, like, oh, it's no big deal. I like that candidate. I'll put the sticker up there, right? And then they came back with the big yard sign. Many more people, statistically significant number of people said yes to putting the large yard sign in their yard, right? So... What does this really mean? Why is that called the foot in the door? Well, the idea is that when someone says yes to a small request, it would make you a hypocrite to say no to a similar request, a follow-up request, right? Does that make sense? So it's hard for someone who said yes to later on say no because it's hard to justify that. Say, why would I say yes to this and say no to that? So uh, to be consistent, you say yes again. And that's often used in sales, where you say yes to maybe a free trial, right? And then after using Spotify or whatever for a while, then you say yes to the premium, okay? And so so this is a, a thought-out strategic technique that's often used. And this is what's called the foot in the door. So if you need to borrow money and you need $100, you don't start with $100, right? You ask for 25 some an amount that's easy for someone to say yes. And then later on you increase that amount later 
to where you get the hundred dollars that you need, they're much more likely to say yes. Okay, and that's called the foot in the door technique. Okay, so that's what I want to talk to talk to you about in terms of attitude and persuasion. Let me shift gears and talk about conformity, right? So conformity, I think, in our American culture, and this is my take on it, is that I think most of us have a negative connotation, right? If you were to ask most people in America, are you a conformist? They would probably say, no, you're kidding. I don't, I'm not a sheep, right? I don't go along with the group, right? Um, so, but in psychology, we know differently. So conformity here, and again, a lot of the so social psych research came from post-World War II and post-Nazi era because the question was, well, how did so many people follow along with the group like sheep, you know, to, to commit these heinous acts? Well, so some fundamental basic conformity research started. And so the idea here is that, and the definition is that there's a change in a person's behavior to go along with the group, even if one doesn't necessarily agree with the group, right? Um, and that is conformity. And let me talk about Solomon Ash. Okay, Solomon Ash in the 1950s created what's called the line judgment task or study, which is very well known in the field of social psychology. He probably doesn't get get enough credit for this study uh, amongst other well known studies in social psych. But what he did was he created a laboratory experiment with students, right, in a room, where they were asked to look at a large um, board that had lines on it right labeled a b and c different lengths and then there's a separate board that had a line on it and they were supposed to match it and say well which of these three lines matches that other line that standard line right and they would go around the room one by one so there's someone leading the experiment they go to subject one and say okay what's your answer and they would say a okay subject number two what's your answer okay a whatever okay and you're sitting in seat number four, right? Position number four. And what's your answer? Okay, so you've heard other people's answers, and then you're going to answer. Now, what's key about this experiment? Two things. One is that you, for example, sitting in seat number four, you're the only real subject. Everyone else are actors, okay? Everyone else in the room, they're actors, right? Including the experimenter in the front. Of course, they're in on it. Um, and then another aspect of it is that these lines are not confusing at all. It's really crystal clear for anyone with regular vision, right, which is the correct line. So there's nothing really fuzzy about it at all. It's really, really obvious. Okay? So it's not an optical illusion. Right? So it's really clear what the right answer is. And then what happens is that after a few go-arounds, you're going to start, this is kind of boring, we're just looking at lines, it's so painfully obvious, until subject number one, during maybe the third time around, says it's line B, when actually it's line A, that's the matching line. You're thinking, what's wrong with this person? Maybe they're just bored. And then subject number two says line B, when it should be line A. Subject number three, right next to you, says line B, and you're like, what the... And then you're kind of confused, right? You're in a group of people with maybe seven people at a table. And you're wondering why three people in a row are calling out the clearly incorrect line, right? So let's think about this. One of those what-if questions. If that were you, right, would you go along with the others and call out the clearly incorrect 
answer or would you stick to your guns and say dudes it's line a right well what happened was two-thirds of the subjects in that position where you're sitting went along with the group right to call out the same incorrect answer at least once right so they conformed even though they knew what they were saying was wrong okay and so three out of four okay conform to group pressure at least once by indicating the incorrect line okay so then Hash became interested in saying, well, what's, what's going on here, right? So what he figured out was is that the larger the group was all against one, then the social pressure was really great. The person will likely conform and call out the wrong answer like everybody else, right? He also found out that you don't need a lot of people on your side, right? So if everybody's calling out the wrong number, but one of those other actors, again, you think they're fellow students, who ahead of you calls out the correct line okay so maybe 10 in the room but you and one other person is one lone dissenter okay who's dissenting dissenting against the group right they call it line a and you call it line a right then the real subject is much more likely to not conform to the group almost to zero right so Think about how much relief it is to just have one ally in the room if you're the minority perspective, right? So if everybody's doing things this certain way and you don't like it, you just need to have one person with you. That's what the study has found, right? Um, so I thought this was kind of interesting in terms of social influence, okay? And the kind of social influence that Ash uh, displayed in his study is called normative social influence people conforming to a group norm because they want to fit in they want to feel good they want to be accepted by the group that's normative social influence now there's another kind of social influence or another kind of conformity and that's called informational social influence okay so you're conforming well partly because you want to belong but it's because you're in a very ambiguous or unclear situation, such as going into a new coffee shop you've never been into before that has a different kind of layout, right? Different kind of script. You're visiting a restaurant you've never been to before. You're not sure what to do first, right? Then what happens is, is that we observe others and we copycat. We take in information because we're in an unfamiliar environment and then you you act accordingly along with everybody else okay that's conforming right but you're conforming for a different reason you're conforming because you're trying to do what's appropriate not because oh you know i just want to fit in and be accepted so if i were to take you to a taiwan street market right to have some food right well there's a set of social norms and scripts that go along with going into that environment right in terms of what to order how to pick you know how to stand in line and all those kinds of things right um and i and i think especially riding subways around the world in different environments right there are different rules um haven't been to japan or china especially china you see a lot of chaos a lot of people pushing no real order trying to get on a subway that's really crowded and dense but in taiwan people wait in line they, they actually stand in those little drawn lines 
and <laughs> no one cuts in line, right? That's local, that is. Okay. And that's just that particular social norm. So if you're not sure, what you do is you watch what are other people are doing. Oh, I'm supposed to stand here. Okay. And I think that's happening in this COVID environment, right? Uh, you go into a store and maybe it's early on and people are wearing masks and you're like, oh, maybe I should wear a mask too, right? Um, maybe the motivation is normative because you don't want to stick out. I want to, you know, just blend in. Or maybe because, oh, you know, this is all new to me. What should I do? Oh, this is what I should do. Then that's more informational social influence. Okay. All right. So another aspect of conformity is obedience, right? So obedience is actually complying to an authority figure, right? You're obeying the directions of someone in authority. That's called obedience, right? Now, one of the most famous, if not the famous, social psych study done in the early 60s was by Stanley Milgram. And this is, I'm going to talk to you about his obedience experiment. Okay. And again, I'm trying to think about how much detail to, to walk you through this, but let me try to give you the essentials, right? So imagine you're a subject in Stanley Milgram's study. And you see the ad in the newspaper, you go in, you have you paid a certain amount, you know, to, to participate. And again, you're free to quit at any time, right? That's part of the part of the ethics. And you were told that at a flip of a coin, you and this other person next to you, actually it's more like drawing straws on a piece of paper. One of you be, will be a teacher, one of you will be a learner. But what you didn't know is that it was rigged, so you're always the teacher. Okay, so the learner goes to another room. Your job is to teach them words, word pairs, so they can memorize these certain set of words. And they're going to answer in a multiple choice format, like one through four, right? And give you the word. Uh, you give them a list of words to remember. And if they answer incorrectly when you ask them a question, then you say incorrect. And you're separated in different rooms, so you communicate via microphone and speaker. So you don't see the other person, but you can hear them, and you can see their responses. And when they answer correct, they say correct, and you go on to the next question. If they answer incorrectly, you're supposed to punish them with an electric shock, and you have this big electric shock generator where it goes from 0 volts all the way to 450 volts, right, where it's marked XXX danger, right? And there's an experimenter in the room with you who's giving you directions okay, about what to do. So, at some point, the shocks get painful, and you hear some protest from the other room, from the uh, learner, right? And again, what you didn't know is that it was rigged, right? The other person's in on it. They're part of the experiment, and they're actually playing an audio recording so that their responses are consistent for every person who's participating. They hear the same thing. So at some point, the learner's going to start complaining of pain. I have a heart condition. Come on, please stop. And of course, as a normal human being, empathetic, right, with a heart, you're going to tell the experimenters, hey, I can't go on. That person has a heart condition in there. But what you didn't expect was that the experimenter with a white lab coat is going to tell you that, oh, the experiment requires that you continue. Please continue. Right? Now, there's no physical force here, right? You're not bound to the chair. And so this is the decision, right? 
for you to imagine yourself in that position. Remember what I said earlier? We cannot really imagine ourselves in that position, but if you were trying to, I'm sure most students would say that, well, of course I would stop at the first sign that someone's yelling for help in there. But guess what? Right? Two out of three participants in that role of the teacher administered shocks to the maximum voltage to the point that along the way there were screams and then at around 375 there's no sound coming from the other side where you still administer shocks because the experimenter kept saying that the experiment requires that you continue right now of course that means that one out of three they were able to disobey the experimenter and just simply refused, sat there and crossed their arms and refused to continue. But two out of three turned their swivel chair around and continued the experiment and kept punishing the learner for wrong answers. Right? So what was learned from this particular experiment? Now again, this is similar to the Zimbardo study is that it wasn't really a pure experiment although there were other conditions that were created later such as having the learner in the same room with you where you had to physically hold down their hand to give them an electric shock right and what they found was that the closer you are to the victim the learner the less likelihood you will inflict pain right so the fact that the learner was in a different room sight unseen but you can just sort of hear some sounds right there's a psychological distance that's there okay that made it a bit easier to inflict harm on someone else when they're not so close to you where you don't have to put your hand on them or actually see them suffer right. okay all right so let's move on so you can see how the the the, the lesson of the Milgram study was that um, the power of that situation and the, and the fact that there was an authority figure that was from a reputable university right telling you to do something and a lot of the participants and there, there's classic video on this would often say are you taking responsibility for this and the experimenter would say yes and they would continue right so there is that sense of diffusion of responsibility that may have played a part where if a person felt like I'm playing a role, right, just like in the Zimbardo study with the prison guards, right, I'm just doing a job, but the person with the ultimate responsibility is my authority figure with the lab coat, then if that other person's harmed, at least I'm not at fault, right? And again, there's a much deeper dive in many interpretations and, and writings about this. Um, that we can spend a lot of time on. But let's move on to the next subject. And this is, we're going to talk about prejudice and discrimination. Now, needless to say, there are countless examples of this in our society worldwide, right? Where one group inflicts harm against the other, discriminates and pushes down another group, whether it's by gender or by ethnic origin, by religion, right? Um, where there's genocide taking place, uh, lynchings in America, right? So, just about everywhere you see in any society that has a blend of people of and again it's not so much ethnic identity necessarily it could just be religion or it could be country of origin right that suddenly 
there's one group that has more power than the other, you'll see prejudice and discrimination. So let's talk about this a little bit. First, let's clarify some terms. And oftentimes these terms you'll see in our normal society, regular society, tend to be jumbled up. Okay, So I'm going to do this in a slightly different order than the textbook slide. I'm going to talk about stereotyping first. Right. So stereotyping is a thought, right? It's how you think about an individual based on their membership to a particular group, based on uh, a group you feel like they belong to, whether it's male, female, whether it's black or white, right? Age, okay? So what we're doing is we're taking group information and applying it to this individual that we may or may not know very well. Usually stereotyping occurs when we don't know the individual. Okay. And so stereotypes often gets mixed up with prejudice because people think that stereotyping is 100% negative and bad, and that's not necessarily true. There are such things as positive stereotypes, right? Such as Asian kids are good at math. Sounds pretty positive, right? And it's a generalization because you're Asian, you're part of this group, there's an assumption, maybe based on some factual information, right? That, oh, because you belong to that group, you must also be good at math and science. Now, of course, that may or may not be true depending on the person, but that is the stereotype. Oh, you're from Asia, you must eat rice, right? Well, factually, that's somewhat true, right? as a generalization. So all stereotypes are generalizations. Some can be factually true. Some can be extremely inaccurate. Right? Some can be positive sounding. Some can be extremely negative. Right? But even the positive ones have some negative consequences. So let's say that a teacher expects this Asian American student in their class to be very good at academics or very good at math. Right? Well, that could place a lot of pressure on this particular student to excel in an area that may, they may struggle in or maybe they don't like. Right? So they're struggling to conform to those expectations, and it, and it could have negative consequences. Right? There's quite a few Asian American students who commit suicide or have low self-esteem because of this academic pressure that's placed upon them. Right? So you might assume that, well, that's better than a stereotype of that you're stupid. right? But even a positive stereotype can have some unintended consequences okay so stereotype is just an assumption that we have about people in a particular group and again it's just information there's not necessarily any emotion emotion behind it now if you want to add attitude and emotion that's where we run into prejudice right where it's negative attitude and emotion towards a person because you believe they be belong to a particular social group not Remember, what these social groups are could be arbitrary. You know, oh, I hate jocks. You know, I hate athletes. You know, it doesn't really matter what that group is, okay? Um, people may have a particular emotion, right? So prejudice has to do with a strong dislike or hatred towards a particular group. So there's a, then you blend in negative stereotypes to feed that emotion, okay? And then you then you can develop a racist person, okay? But let's talk about the third term before we talk about racism, and that's discrimination, right? 
So whereas prejudice is more of a thought and an emotion, right? So you cannot actually see prejudice, but you can see discrimination because discrimination is the action based on the prejudice, right? So if you're at work and you're, you're suspecting that your employer is racist, is discriminating against you based on race, right? Well, you don't really know until they act on it until they say something, right? Or that they pay you less than others who are doing the same job at a similar level, right? So the action, so in essence, any boss can be as prejudiced as they want in their mind, right? As long as they don't act out, right? The, those attitudes and feelings in a negative way towards their employees. Does that make sense? Um, so those prejudice attitudes can be hidden, right? But discrimination is not hidden. These are the actions that we can see. Now, these days in modern society, it could be a tweet. It could be something they post on social media. That could be the action, the expression, right, um, of one's prejudice. So again, stereotype is just information. Prejudice, you add on some negative feelings and attitudes about a person of a particular group. And then the discrimination is the action taken. So discrimination can have different levels, right? There's individual level discrimination, someone yelling at you, uh, maybe use a racist epithet towards you in a public place, right? Just being hostile towards you for no reason. Or it could be systemic, institutional, right? There's with these terms that are thrown around a lot in 2020 because we're awakened to the idea and the terminology of systemic racism. Right? Systemic racism is not necessarily about an individual acting poorly or negatively against another individual. It's the actual system itself, right? the institution that has policies in place that makes it easier to mistreat a particular group of people. All right, so there are explicit right, types of racism where it's just out in the open, okay? very conscious. Then you may have heard of implicit bias, or in this case it's called implicit racism, where it's under the surface and... Is that a level where we really can't control? We just have absorbed this information and these attitudes and they sort of come out here and there and we're not sure that we have them, right? And that's why a lot of this implicit bias research looks at using reaction time okay, experiments to tap into one's unconscious feelings about people depending on their appearance, right, and ethnic categories. And it can tap into whether or not we hold these implicit biases right, and attitudes. Right? All right, so there are a lot of isms out there. So racism is prejudice and discrimination based on perceived race. That's another conversation altogether because we know that race doesn't really exist at the biological level, right? So you cannot define race based on melanin, right, in the skin, right? Race is a socially constructed idea. 
that race is not race unless it was created by society, right? So let me give you one quick example. So I can't do a deep dive at the moment because of time. But, for example, in America, whiteness was actually defined by the courts and can be defined by the states, right? Or blackness, for example, where in one state, maybe um, there's a certain percentage of African-American bloodline that qualifies you, not well, categorizes you as black, right? Or a person of color. Whereas in another state, there may be the, the legal definition of being black is one sixteenth, right? Inheritance by blood, right? So what many sociologists have talked about in, in various circles is that because the, each state has a different definition back in the day of what blackness was, someone can literally change race when you cross state lines, right? So if the law is defining what blackness and whiteness was, then what is race if not created by society, sanctioned by society? So that's what they mean if you ever hear the phrase a socially constructed idea or variable, right? And race is one of those. Yes, there are biological differences amongst people, but in reality, you may be at the DNA, le DNA level more similar to someone who you thought of as a different race than someone you thought of as a similar race, right? So what we think of as race really does not exist at that genetic level. <clears throat> All right, so let me continue on. Um, some concepts that are related to um, stereotyping and prejudice and so forth and one is called self-fulfilling prophecy so this has to do with our attitudes towards other people right so this is kind of an interesting idea self-fulfilling prophecy right is that when you have an expectation about this person that you're encountering positive or negative right whatever your attitude is because you assume something about that person, it changes how you behave towards them. And that what happens is that because you change the way you behave towards that targeted person, then they in turn reacts in a way that fulfills right, your expectation. So in other words, you just created the reality that you made assumptions. Let me give you an example. I remember, and I don't remember how I asked this question in a discussion forum years and years ago. But some students have told me that as working as wait staff, they actually truly believe that uh, African-American or black people tend to tip less, right? That was their stereotype. Well, that's pretty interesting because um, statistically that may or may not be true, but that could be purely an example of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So imagine that you're a wait staff and you hold that perception and that this next family coming in sitting in your section is black and you're thinking well there goes my tip i'm not going to get a tip from them well how do you think as a waitstaff you're going to perform in your effort level and your friendliness level your customer service quality how do you suppose it's going to be towards that particular family if you have the expectation that you're not going to be tipped well chances are it's going to be subpar it's not going to be your best customer service um, effort right okay maybe you'll be late coming to them to check up on them give them their food late not be quite as friendly 
towards them, right? And then you end up getting the bill back and the tip was low. And you say, aha, I knew it. Black people don't tip well, right? And so that can be an example of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If someone comes in that you perceive as being a friendly, a good tipper, whatever that category of person might be in terms of their appearance or race, then aren't you going to be very enthusiastic and happy and energetic, right? So if we change our expectations towards someone, then maybe we bring out something back. If you expect to be encountered by rude people, then chances are maybe you're giving off the vibe where people respond rudely to you. Now, this is not so much blaming the victim, right? This is a little bit different. It's not saying that if you've ever been abused, then you deserved it, you brought it out of that person. That's not what we're saying here, right? But is that in some instances, when we interact with people we don't know, the expectation might bring about the behavior that you expected, and that's called the self-fulfilling prophecy, okay? And the confirmation bias is interesting because... When we have stereotypes, oftentimes we only seek out information that confirms that stereotype, right? So I imagine that for someone who's involved in white supremacy in America, that they're going to look for evidence to support their views that whites are the superior race, right? So it's going to be a particular news outlet, particular websites, particular discussion forums online, right? They're going to seek out information that confirms whatever their bias is going to be. And then if they have a life experience where um, it goes against their confirmation, uh, goes against their bias. So for example, a white supremacist was treated by an emergency room doctor who's black, right? And if part of their racist ideology is that black people have smaller brains and they're not as smart, then this is going to be a conflicting situation, right? So they're going to have cognitive dissonance. Well, I'm being treated by a black doctor. My my belief system told me that black people aren't smart or as capable. So how do I resolve this dissonance of these two mismatching ideas? Well, one way to do that is by rationalizing is that, well, this doctor must have gotten there through affirmative action, right? They only got to their status because of their race. They didn't really earn it. They're not really as smart as other doctors or maybe they're the token doctor hired because of diversity policy you see so any of those ideas can reinforce and they can still maintain their bias even though they have conflicting experience of an ER doctor who's black okay. so that is a very very powerful concept okay all right now in terms of prejudice and discrimination as stereotyping another aspect that reinforces this in our society and amongst people is the idea of in groups and out groups right so an in group is a group that you belong to an out group is a is a group that you're not affiliated with okay so it could be as simple as your team your high school your college right affiliation um, and again it could be your status your income status could be your ethnicity and so forth right and so it's very easy to for these groups that really may not have much difference to begin with, we start to develop 
an affinity, a like for people in our group. And we start to find reasons to dislike the group that we don't belong to. And again, this is part of cognitive dissonance, right? Well, why would I be in this group if I didn't like it? Why would I not be in that group if I didn't dislike it, right? If they were the same as us, right, then why am I hating that group? Does that make sense? So, so to hate the out group is to really get rid of our cognitive dissonance, is to help explain and justify why you're choosing this group instead. Okay? And, and that has to do with in-groups and out-groups. So, so even if um, scapegoating is very common, so uh, you see this a lot in politics that a politician might exploit the idea that well, you are suffering because of these newcomers, these new immigrants, whether they're legal or illegal, right? They're taking your jobs, right? So I'm not saying that's factual or not, okay? That's, you can, we can debate that another time, but what I'm saying is that's an example of scapegoating. It's finding an outsider group to blame for our current circumstances, right? Okay, so I'm near the end of this particular lecture podcast, and I'm going to talk about uh, pro-social behavior or helping behavior and the bystander effect, right? So this line of research, right, and I told you before that a lot of social psych research came about because of trying to understand human behavior because of World War II and Nazism and the genocide. Well, this particular incidence propelled a lot of helping behavior research. And under what situations do we offer help and don't help? In 1964, and you're going to find a, a wide variety of stories behind the factual nature of this, right? So the, the basic essence of it is this. Catherine Genovese, or often listed as Kitty Genovese, a young woman living in New York, was attacked and killed uh, in a knife attack outside her apartment building, right? And so she screamed for help, and the attacker ran off, and then the attacker came back and killed her. And supposedly, according to newspaper reports at the time, there were dozens of eyewitnesses. And this happened at night, okay? And no one called the police, okay? So this is an example where the headlines used, a lot of the headlines at the time used the word ap apathetic. People just don't care in big cities, you know? It's just one of those things. How can New York people do this? They're just cold, you know, living in a dense environment like that, right? So... There's the fundamental attribution error, right, in terms of these eyewitnesses, is that uh, just because they're in a crowded environment and they live there, it's, it's the New Yorker in them that did not help, okay? Well, um, John Darley and Bib Latney, um, some researchers, and I believe John Darley is at Princeton University, started to do experiments to find out, you know, under what situations would someone offer help. And I recall in one particular experiment, and I hope I'm getting this all, all the details right, was that he would have an actor um, posed to be injured in a particular pathway on, on the college campus. And the actual subject was told to give a talk. Um, and the talk was supposed to be about the story of the Good Samaritan parable from the Bible, right? And the Good Samaritan parable was a story about helping someone, okay? So that's on their mind. And they're told to go from point A to point B to give this talk. And along the way, they're going to run into and see this person crying for help who looks injured, right? 
Now, the difference in the different conditions, because it was an experiment, is that one half of the group was told that you have plenty of time, just walk on over there, right? And the other half of the group told that they were running late, so you better hurry to get to your presentation. Well, you would think that um, if you survey students, well, under what situation, what percentage of the students in each group would stop and help that injured person? I think most people would say that most of them. Okay. Oh, and another twist to this, and I think this is a brilliant design twist, was that this experiment took place at a um, seminary college. Right? So these are students who are studying to be priests, and they're going to give a talk about helping people. All right, so all the factors are in their favor, right? If there's anyone on earth other than a nurse, right, or, or a social worker who would stop and help someone in need, wouldn't it be this person who's actually mentally rehearsing the parable about helping someone in need, right? Well, what happened was, was that the majority of those who were told that they're not running late did stop to talk to this person who was injured and try to get them help. Now the sad result is that just by telling someone who's mentally rehearsing the Good Samaritan parable who's studying to be a priest that they're running a few minutes late was enough for the majority of them to actually walk past this injured person Again, they were students faking an injury, but still they're portraying an injured person. And they literally walked over this person to get to where they needed to go. How sad is that, right? So if that doesn't demonstrate the power of the situation, I'm not sure what does, right? So dispositionally speaking, these are people you would expect to stop and render aid regardless of their situation. It doesn't matter if they're running late or not, you stop and help. But something as small as running late to an appointment would cause a future priest thinking about the Good Samaritan parable to not stop and render aid. Um, so they actually did more experiments, and what they found was that whenever there was a person in need of help, and the environment around them had actually a few people, observers, or more observers. We call them bystanders, right? In a way, wouldn't you expect that if you're injured and there's a ton of people around you, like at a busy mall, wouldn't you expect that, well, there's hundreds of people here with hundreds of more hands to help. Surely you get help, statistically speaking, right? Whereas if you're in a, dark, in a country road that barely has any cars and your car broke down, you're probably not going to get help there, right? There's fewer people. Well, research found the opposite. The less dense the environment in terms of people, the more likely you are to get help. Right? The more people around you, the less likely you may get help. And that is called the bystander effect. And one way to explain this is the diffusion of responsibility. If you think of responsibility as a pie, it's making me hungry, and... The people around you all share in that responsibility to help this injured person or the person that needs help or the person asking for money, right? Well, if there's 10 people, then I, as an individual, I might feel 10% responsible. If there's 100 people, I'm going to start to feel less, 1% responsible, right? 
Well, if you're the only person there, and then there's someone there who fell down and they spilled their books everywhere and they look hurt, don't you have 100% of the responsibility, right? So that's called the diffusion of responsibility. The more people there who are observing an event where someone's in need of help, the sense of responsibility is diffused, is split up, divided amongst the people around you. So actually, if you need help, you're better off in a less populated place purely because of that math of diffusion of responsibility, right? Now, there are other parts of this besides just the number of people, right? It's the clarity of the situation, okay? We take our cues and clues from the people around us. So imagine you're in a vehicle, right? And there's a long line of cars and there's, and there's people stranded on the side of the road standing outside their vehicle. You know, it definitely looks like they're stranded. But yet every car in front of you drives past them. Then what happens is that that helps you to interpret that this situation must not be that serious. If everybody's passing by, so whether you're on foot, whether you're in a car, in my example, it, it helps you to interpret that situation as not critical. And therefore you... Do not render aid. But if you are the only person witnessing this event, you don't have the influence of other people around you to interfere with your interpretation of that event, then you as an individual are more likely to interpret this as a person in need. In other words, you will interpret it more clearly and more accurately than if you're in a crowded place where everybody's just watching and not intervening, right? Because everybody's looking at each other. The, the, the responsibility is diffused, right? So, again, that's why they train people, that if you're in need, you point at someone to break down the diffusion of responsibility. Hey, you, over there, Asian guy who teaches psychology. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, can you help me out? Can you call 911, right? And... Uh, that is much more effective than just simply yelling, somebody call 911. Because everybody's going to look at each other like, oh, I'm sure somebody called. right? So that might have happened to you. Maybe you witnessed something while driving around, you saw a car on fire, and you're assuming, I'm sure the authorities are on their way. What if everybody thought that? right? Have you ever watched baseball where there's a fly ball in the outfield? Right in between the infielders and the outfielders, and three players converge on the ball and they stand there, thinking that the other person was going to catch the ball and it lands right in between the three players. Right, that's an example of diffusion of responsibility. Okay, I think that's enough for this particular lecture of social psychology. Again, I tried to hit some of the highlights and main themes specifically the power of the situation, go over some of the classic studies in psychology, including the Philip Zimbardo prison experiment at Stanford, as well as the, uh, oh, I'm running a blank here, I've talked too long, uh, as well as uh, Solomon Ash's uh, line judgment study, okay, and, uh, and others, okay. So I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope this was helpful, and I'll talk to you in a future episode.